0: we turn to the book of the prophet Isaiah, the sixth chapter, a very famous passage of scripture describing Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And we'll use this as a unison reading, so I hope you'll find it in your bulletin insert. We'll read verses one through five. Let us read the word of God together. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Yesterday was the 240th anniversary of a, a somewhat famous event leading up to our American Revolution, and you would know what I'm referring to as the so-called Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Uh, though actually he started at about 10 o'clock that night, as I understand the story. And first he was in a boat and later on a horse and there were two other people working with him to make sure that Concord was apprised of the situation, that the British were coming, a man by the name of William Dawes and a man by the name of Samuel Prescott. I bring up this topic of of a revolution because every now and then sociologists will tell us that there is a a revolution going on in our society with a certain generation coming along much like there was in the 60s and the 70s. That's when I was growing up. And I remember it being talked about, you know, this, this social revolution that was taking place in America at that time where the young people were talking about truth and, and liberty and equality and justice and peace, they were reacting to some extent uh, against the high value placed on material things of those generations that had gone before them. In the meantime, the pendulum swung back the other way and now we're told that the youngest generation is again Reacting against uh, the status that we put upon material things. You see things popping up in this day and time, like the small house movement, for example, where people are living in a three or four hundred square foot home as opposed to two thousand or three thousand square feet. And these same young people are also talking about peace and they're talking about love, and they're, they're talking about respect and a care for one another. But what we have to remember is that attempts to translate these wonderful ideas like peace and love into reality are doomed to fail unless we recognize their origin and consider their nature. Like flowers that have been cut, from their source of life. The ideas that oftentimes produce societal revolution are Judeo-Christian in nature, but they've been lifted from their very source. Even back near the end of World War II, before the social revolution that many of us remember in a much-talked-about book by the name The Predicament of Modern Man, Dr. Elton Trueblood, was making the point that we can't make these wonderful ideas work because we've separated them from Christ. It was like we were a cut flower generation. We had the beauty on the outside, but there was no life to come because we've separated them from the source. He said we've inherited precious ethical convictions that that seem to us to be profound, central, and essential, but they have a curious They are noble, but they are impotent. That makes us think of Jesus' words in John 15 when he said, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. Now we need to hear all of this so that it will get us In the proper frame of mind, if you will, for this text that's before us this morning because this was, to some extent, uh, the situation faced by the prophet Isaiah with Israel in his day and time. Israel had severed herself, had cut off herself from her source of life and this fact manifested itself in the moral decay of the people just like we see in our nation and in our world today. All you have to do is read the first few chapters of the book of Isaiah to see how bad the conditions really were. Isaiah says things like the strong are crushing the weak. The political life is corrupt. The laws cannot check greed and selfishness, which are the root causes of of many of our social problems. Now, you know, sometimes you and I, we kind of tend to stay away from the prophets because we think they spoke so long ago and they don't really have anything to say to us. And yet, did you notice that Isaiah just described perfectly America today? Listen again. The strong are crushing the weak. The political life is corrupt. And the laws cannot check greed, and selfishness. He goes on to tell us about how judges and officials receive bribes, crime, and lawlessness flourish. The whole nation, he says, is sick from the crown of its head to the soles of its feet. You see that the nation of Israel had lost its sense of mission. It had forgotten its divine origin and purpose, indeed its source of life, which was the Almighty and living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Israel had forgotten that God was God. Right at the beginning of his first chapter, Isaiah writes, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And God goes on to say there, I have nourished children, and they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey his master's crib, but Israel does not know. They do not understand. Now, it goes without saying that those are are pretty harsh words, words of judgment and condemnation. And just how can Isaiah say those sorts of things? How is he any different than the rest of the people in Israel? What right does he have to talk about the sins of others? You see, this is the predicament in which all prophets and preachers find themselves. If we truly proclaim God's word of judgment, sometimes it sounds like as if we leave ourselves out of it. You know, so we're talking about you and your sins and it's not like we're including ourselves in that. In fact, that's probably why many of us preachers don't like to preach from the prophets too much. Because those words of condemnation sound like they're directed at you and not at us. And any preacher worth his salt preaches to himself first. He's got the word coming to him before he gives it to you and hopefully it's having its effect. The reason that it's not really the way I've just described it, that we're standing up here and preaching about your sins is because of what we find out in this text. We see the reason why Isaiah can speak as he speaks. For he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Just think about that. We know that God is a spirit. He doesn't wear a robe, but that's the way Isaiah pictured it in his vision. That's the way it was given to him. Think of this entire sanctuary covered by the train of God's, of God's robe. must have been some more sight. And he says, "...the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke." And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, Isaiah sees his own sinfulness first. That's why he can speak words of judgment and condemnation to Israel. He's already been apprised of the sinner that he is. And all of this comes to him because he's seen the king. The Lord of hosts. This vision, this tremendous spiritual experience was indeed a revolution because it was a spiritual revolution of the old ideas of sin and repentance and unworthiness as well as God's righteousness, God's majesty, and God's power. It put Isaiah in touch with a perfect righteousness of God in all His holiness, and it brought him to his knees in disgrace. For this vision led him to a a devastating sense of his own unworthiness and that of, of the people among whom he lived. And his only response is confession, coupled with a great sense of urgency to make God's Word known. And you know, I don't think this is an unusual picture in Scripture. This is something that we see over and over again in the leaders of God's people where they have been given some kind of wonderful vision or spiritual experience or a call or a revolution or whatever you want to call it. And they're so overawed by God's presence that they immediately confess their own unworthiness. And then that's when God takes them and uses them, sinners that they are, in the work of His kingdom. Think about Abraham. Abraham wasn't a perfect person. Abraham had his own problems. He's called a man of faith, but he didn't want to wait on God. He tried to force the issue of that child that God had promised to him, and yet God made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham became the father of a nation. Or think of of his grandson Jacob, who was a great deceiver most of his life until he's running for his life. He's just not sure what's going to happen to him. And he's out in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And and I didn't know it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and Jacob is a changed man from there on out and his new name Israel tells us about that change. Or think about Moses as a young man who murdered an Egyptian. But God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and then later on up on the mountain, God allows him to see a little bit of his glory. And then there's Job who said, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore I repent. I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. And last but not least, out of the New Testament, you may remember that story when Peter saw this great catch of fish that came about by the command of Jesus at a time of day when you shouldn't be catching fish. And after they had worked all night long, he and his partners, and had caught nothing, Peter falls at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, Get out of my sight because you're a sinner? No. He says just the opposite. He says, Don't be afraid. From here on out, you'll be catching men. And we're told when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. And why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't you and I follow someone who takes us even in the midst of our sins, even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of all of those mistakes we make day in and day out, week in and week out, and says, don't be afraid. You know, I've got just the job for you. You see, God wants people like Jacob and Peter He wants people like Moses and Isaiah. It's not that they're extraordinary. They make as terrible mistakes and commit as bad a sins as anyone. Rather, they're able to see God for who He is. God has given them the gift of seeing Him for who He really is, that He's the sovereign and all-powerful God. And at the same time, they're able to see themselves for who they really are, the sinner's That they are. They have this double vision. They see God and then they see themselves for who they really are and all their unworthiness. And even though we're the sinners we are, the good news is that God wants us too. He loves us so much that He sent His Son Jesus Christ into this earth to die on the cross for our sins. And He has things for us to do if we're able to see ourselves for who we really are and admit it and confess it. And that's hard for us to do. Do you know why it's hard? Because we think we're better than other people. Or most of us do. There might be a few here today who think that I've done something so bad that God could never want me or use me in His kingdom, which is not the case because Jesus tells us over and over, I came into this world for sinners. I came into this world for those who make terrible decisions and commit terrible sins. But going back to the majority... Those of us who think we're better than others think that because we tell ourselves that, you know, I hadn't ever killed anyone. I haven't ever raped. I haven't ever terrorized. I'm not that kind of sinner. And yet we're still the same in the sight of God. That's what the Bible teaches. We've sinned and fallen short of God's goal of righteousness. And because we've sinned, we know what that leads to because of Romans six twenty three, The wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. This is why Jesus had such a contempt for many of the Pharisees and Jewish leaders of his day and time because they would not admit that they were the same sinner as the prostitute they condemned. They would not admit they were the same sinner as the tax collector they despised. And Jesus kept trying to get them to see that. In fact, in his 18th chapter, Luke tells us, About a parable that Jesus once told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others because of it. It's a little story I'm sure you remember hearing. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, get, I give tithes of, of all that I get. You hear all that I language in there? It's all about Him. There's nothing about God going on in this man's life. It's all about what He does. And we know what we do. We sin. He's on His way to death. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up toward heaven but beat himself in the chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This tax collector had experienced a spiritual revolution. He saw God as the Almighty God the one who's in control, the one who's sovereign, the one who's providential, the one who's all-righteous and all-holy and full of majesty and glory and honor and power. And you and I need to pray for that same kind of experience so that like Isaiah, we too will answer, Woe is me, for I am lost. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And seeing that King, I realize how unworthy I am. And that unworthiness sounds like bad news, doesn't it? And yet the good news of the gospel that we find in Romans 5, 8 is that God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were unworthy, Christ died for us. Doesn't that sound like good news to you? Believe it and live in its peace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.